and he just looked at me with a very kind of old-fashioned look and said, and you really think Britain's gardeners are going to be interested in that? Hello, hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 28 from Pot and Closh Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Elvick, a gardener, freelance writer and garden speaker from Gloucestershire in the UK. This podcast is produced with the help of my lovely sponsor, Genus Gardenware. Genus are based in the beautiful Cotswold countryside and their range is designed by keen gardeners who understand how the right sort of clothes can make gardening more comfortable and even more enjoyable. As you all know, gardening is about kneeling and bending, stretching and walking and being outdoors in all weathers and in all seasons. The clothes gardeners wear have to work for all activities and in all conditions and this is what Genus Garden were really good at. Have a look at what they have to offer by visiting genus.gs. My guest today is well-known wildlife gardener, environmentalist and broadcaster Chris Baines. Chris started work in TV in the late 70s with appearances alongside Peter Seabrook on Pebble Mill and Gardener's World. He created his first groundbreaking wildlife show garden at Chelsea in 1985. He's National Vice President of the Wildlife Trusts, President of the Urban Wildlife Partnership and writes for BBC Wildlife. With a revised and updated version of his book, The RHS Companion to Wildlife Gardening, just about to be released, I thought it'd be a good time to catch up with Chris and get the lowdown on this bestseller. I started by asking Chris just how long this book had been available. First published was How to Make a Wildlife Garden uh, in 1985. So that's a very long time ago. Mm. And it's been in print ever since. Uh, and when it was published, I managed to get it uh, launched at Chelsea. I had a, the very first wildlife garden at Chelsea Flower Show that year. So it got a great start and it went straight into the the top 10 non-fiction bestsellers, which was astonishing. At that time, it was published by a small publisher called Elm Tree. And it was the first time they'd ever had a book in the top 10. And I, I they took me out for lunch, which uh, <laughs> every, every author I've ever talked to says, really? Publishers never take authors out for lunch. So that was a, a very kind of uh, memorable beginning, really. And it really shook the horticultural establishment, I think. Because I, you know, I was at Chelsea encouraging daisies in the lawn, um, and you know, at that time we were still really hanging on the on the coattails of Dig for Victory and all those you know, sharp green lines in lawns and all the rest of it. So, what I was encouraging people to think about was gardens as a place where they could engage with nature rather than try and suppress nature. And, yes. and I mean, Chelsea, you can probably imagine, was just full of the biggest and the best. And it was a very kind of dramatic kind of Chelsea. The, the, the gardens there were. But it was in a way it was untouchable. You know, you, you'd go around Chelsea Flower Show and I'd been going since I was a student. So I'd been going for a long time even then. And people would stand with their mouths open in front of the gardens, nobody speaking because that was kind of the purpose of it. It was it was awesome, awe-inspiring. Until they got to my little garden, where there was this absolute hubbub of conversation about the stuff that the, that was familiar to them, uh, that they recognised from their own gardens, um, that was much more kind of modest in scale. You can imagine a garden planted with primroses and violets and cowslips, uh, as well as things like wallflowers and, and uh, cottage garden plants, really. 
yeah. was such a contrast. Um, and I, one of the great memories for me of of uh, doing that Chelsea garden was on the very first day, uh, you inherit your bit of playing field, basically, at Chelsea. You don't know what you're going to get. And I, my little bit of the playing field had no daisies in it at all. So my first day was spent going around all the other garden designers, digging up their daisies and transplanting them across to my little garden. They weren't going to miss them, were they? <laughs> well, exactly. And so by the end of the first day, they knew that this this uh, crazy person had arrived at Chelsea who was, was planting weeds. Um, but as I say, the, the public loved it and the papers loved it because it was such a contrast. Um, the Royal Horticultural Society, I think, were completely wrong-footed by it to the extent that on my Chelsea medal, it actually is inscribed to J.C. Baines for his wildfire garden. They just could not get their head around the idea that the words wildlife and garden could be in the same sentence. Mm. Um, and now here they are publishing um, How to Make a Wildlife Garden as an RHS classic. So that's yeah. quite a journey, really. No, that's amazing. But your your media career, if you like, didn't start there. That was what, about 1985, Chelsea, I think, wasn't yeah. it? But yeah. you, I mean, way back late 70s, I think 1979, you were on Gardener's World. I think, was it Peter Seabrook in those days? Peter Seabrook had quite recently taken over from Percy Thrower. That's how long ago it was. And mm. um, I'd worked with Peter. I, I was doing wildlife gardening uh, items and environmental items, really, on, on a, a daily programme called Pebble Mill at One, which... I remember that. Very yes. old people will remember. Alan Titchmarsh um, was on there, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, so, so I, was, I was doing environmental action stuff, really, and one part of that was you can make a difference in your own garden, showing people how to put up bird feeders and nest boxes and plant wildflowers and that kind of thing. And Peter Seabrook was was the kind of orthodox gardening correspondent on Pebble Mill at once. So we were there running in parallel, really, with, with long sideways glances from Peter towards this strange guy with the beard and long hair who, who was about as big a contrast to Peter Seabrook as you could ever imagine. Um, and then I was invited to to design and build one of two gardens for Gardener's World. They did a, a makeover long, long before Ground Force was even a twinkle in the eye, you know. Um, we had two adjacent plots in Peterborough on the Newtown. Um, and one was designed by the Newtown landscape architect, and it was very orthodox, standard, oval lawn with, with carpet bedding around it kind of garden. And mine, I designed as something I called a rich habitat garden. And it had a bubbler fountain and it had plants that were good for pollinators and it had nest boxes and that kind of thing. And I just remember Peter on the second day, really, when we were cracking on with making these gardens, kind of stepped through the gap in the fence and asked me what my idea was, what the idea of the garden was. Um, and visually, it must have been extraordinary because he was very dapper and I was very hippie, really. Um, and uh, and I said, well, Peter, I, you know, I wanted to be a garden that's great for families and things, but I really want to attract as much wildlife as possible. And he just looked at me with a very kind of old fashioned look and said, and you really think Britain's gardeners are going to be interested in that? <laughs> Um, and I, Peter and I became great friends uh, over the years, although we were poles apart in terms of, of our philosophy. And, you know, he's 
he went to his grave campaigning for peat and compost uh, <laughs> and for herbicides and pesticides. And I'd spent my life campaigning against those things. <clears throat> but nevertheless, you know, we we had mutual respect. Yes. Um, and and, you know, 35, 40 years later, 42 years, 43 years later, I don't think there's any question that the nation's gardeners were interested and are interested in that kind of thing. No, absolutely. No. So all that time ago, 40 plus years ago, what made you different? Why? What made you want to follow this route? Why didn't you want to apply pesticides? I and mean, we all know the answer in some ways now, but so early on, decades ago, what, what sparked that in you? Well, I think <clears throat> I... I mean, I did use herbicides in my early horticultural career. I worked in the Middle East, in the deserts of the Middle East. I did some pretty orthodox horticulture. That's that's what I was trained to do. But I, I'd spent three years uh, at Y College, um, University of London, uh, studying horticulture. And, and I was basically going there on the assumption that it was all about loving nature, enjoying, you know, the birds singing and the butterflies. And I spent three years being taught how to kill everything, really. <laughs> yes. I mean, horticulture in the 1960s was about um, how to get rid of weeds, pests and diseases, all the things that by a different definition are the wildlife in your garden. <laughs> and I remember the first chemistry lecture was from the professor of chemistry who introduced himself proudly as being a part of the team that in, had invented DDT. <laughs> and this was only f four or five years after Silent Spring had been published. So there was a kind of mismatch. And I'd grown up in a family of gardeners and nature lovers. You know, my dad was a, a painter and it was a teacher, actually, a kind of junior school teacher who would always have a nature table in the corner of the classroom. My mom was a great gardener who could, you know, strike roots on a chair leg kind of gardener. So I'd, I'd grown up with them. I'd worked on the parks department in Sheffield before I went to university. And I, I suppose, was shocked by how different the education that I was given was from what I was really expecting. And I had always loved the countryside. I grew up uh, grew up in Sheffield, but the Peak District was on my doorstep. Um, and so I, I guess I just felt really that there ought to be a different way of thinking about gardens. But the thing that really changed me, I think, is that I spent the first 10 years of my career doing pretty extreme but orthodox stuff. So I, I worked in the Middle East. I worked for a landscape contractor in, in the Midlands, building rock gardens in Kidderminster Back Gardens. Um, and most importantly, I began to work in the inner city, uh, in places like Brixton and Hackney and really grim housing estates where I was initially landscaping, um, but very quickly realised that actually the kids in those communities were completely denied access to nature. But that actually, if you could introduce them to it, you could you could switch on a light, you know, that they were hugely excited by the most modest things. So I spent quite a lot of my time working in those really grim places. And, and I always say one of the great moments of my career was at the end of the Brixton riots when everything had been trashed and burned. Nobody had touched the sunflowers on the Tulse Hill Nature Garden because... <laughs> The kids had grown them. So that really introduced me to that whole idea that 
we're an urban society, you know, of all the people on the earth today, one in a hundred live in the British Isles. You know, this is an urban society. But nature conservation certainly then was a very elitist, very rural pursuit. It was about nature reserves out in the countryside that didn't really want people visiting them. And I was witnessing in in Brixton and Toxteth and all these other places um, the magic of people actually having close physical contact with very ordinary wildlife. I remember having a conversation with some eight and nine-year-old kids in Brixton about how an ant can possibly know at the bottom of an eight-foot-high rose bay willow herb stem that if it walks all the way up to the top, it will find some aphids that it can milk. And you just think, well, I've no idea. But you don't need a nature reserve out in the countryside to, to trigger that kind of magic. So I suppose that working with those kinds of communities in those kinds of very inner city places led to the whole interest in urban nature conservation. I was one of the people that set up the very first urban wildlife group in Birmingham and the Black Country in about 1980. That led to the London Wildlife Trust. And now again, the wildlife movement, urban nature conservation, environmental education are absolutely central. But then they weren't, you know, uh, when we started the Urban Wildlife Group, the main objections to it came from the Worcestershire Wildlife Trust, the Warwickshire Wildlife Trust and the Staffordshire Wildlife Trust, because they really felt I was devaluing the currency, you know, that there couldn't possibly be anything of interest living in the middle of town. And it didn't matter how hard you argued that it didn't matter that were no rarities there. What mattered was the accessibility they didn't really understand it then. And the same applied really to the Royal Horticultural Society and Wildlife Gardening. You know, actually, if you if you asked the judging committee what they loved about getting up at six in the morning and walking out into their gardens, they would all say the bird song. They would all say, I love seeing butterflies in the flower borders. But they weren't making the connection, really. And so I, I was, I suppose, a rebel. Um as a student, I'd been a, a, a student leader in the 80s, uh, in the 60s, when uh, the student revolution was taking place. My dad was a National Union of Teachers uh, regional secretary. So, you know, there's a bit of rebel in me somewhere. And growing up in Sheffield, uh, that's where the mass trespass started from that opened up the national parks and led to the uh, the Peak District and the national parks. So there's a long history in my genes, really, of love of nature, of love of teaching, of love of gardening, uh, and of love of making waves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's get back onto the book. Um, I mean, one of the very first chapters um, is, you know, why why make a wildlife garden? Well, I I think. The first thing to say about the wildlife gardening idea is that it's essentially gardening. It's not about how can I make a nature reserve. It's about how can I garden in a way that is supportive of nature rather than suppressive of nature. And if you think about how much land in this country is occupied by gardens and what's happened to the wider countryside in my lifetime, certainly, and even by the time the book was written, you know, we, we had green deserts out in the countryside. Um, the hedgerows were being removed like there was no tomorrow. Uh, we'd, after the Second World War, developed the chemical technology, the mechanical technology to be able to drain the wetlands, to be able to wipe out the wildflowers in the in the crops. 
So the wider countryside was really being damaged even then and, and has continued just to decline in its wildlife content. Um, but the gardens are the one place where you can have some kind of control over a little bit of land. Um, and that's really, I suppose, why it seemed obvious to me that a nation of gardeners could actually seize control of that decline of wildlife and get real benefit from having birds singing outside the window, seeing butterflies on the buddleia bush, having frogs turn up in the spring to the pond, that that's something that you could do. And individually, that would bring great pleasure. But collectively, it might just make the difference in two ways. It would actually physically make a difference to the number of ponds there were for frogs, but it might actually build the political power to want to see a different kind of wider countryside. And that's taken 40 years, really. But I actually think now, particularly after COVID, I think there is a real awakening to the fact that we need a different set of policies that bring nature back to the wider countryside. So this is revolutionary stuff, really, you know, as a gardener. <laughs> um, and I don't know that I thought all of that through at the time, but I just knew what pleasure I'd always had in my mum and dad's garden and in my gardens from actually, you know, hearing a hedgehog after dark or seeing the frogs and the frog spawn arrive in the beginning of spring. Um, and that I knew there were many other people that if you gave them permission to garden in that kind of way, uh, would jump at the chance. And that's absolutely been the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you talk about the wider countryside, full of different habitats, obviously. How many habitats can we rec recreate in our little garden? The great thing about, uh, about urban Britain, and particularly suburban Britain, I think, is that it's an amazing uh, mosaic of small spaces. I, I talk in the book a lot about just the idea that as a wildlife garden, you need to think of your space as a kind of a glade in the urban forest. You know, I'm looking out of my window now, and that's exactly what my front garden is. It's a, a small space surrounded by street trees, there's a park around the corner. And so I can do a lot in that glade to create habitat for invertebrates, for, for butterflies and bumblebees and for frogs and so on. But mainly I can create a kind of service station in the wider landscape for the surrounding wildlife. And gardens can't provide for everything. I'm unlikely to see otters in my pond. Um, but because the, the diversity of residential neighbourhoods is so great, and because what we've lost in the wider countryside is that variety and diversity and intimacy of landscape. We've lost the little wet corners in the fields. We've lost, you know, the, the overgrown hedgerows. In suburban Britain, you've got an extraordinarily complex, intimate mosaic of different habitats. So my front garden is dominated by a pond. In my road, which isn't very long, I know there are another five ponds. Across, recently, there was um, a research project in Sheffield, uh, which reckoned that there were 10,000 garden ponds in Sheffield. Now, you'd be hard pressed to find an entire rural county that had 10,000 ponds in it anymore. And going back to my garden, mine is, is uh, 
a woodland glade with lots of planting for invertebrates and so on. It doesn't have a lawn, but my next door neighbour has a lawn. So the song thrush that hopefully nests in my hedge will gather its mud for its its nest from the edge of my pond, but it will be finding the leather jackets and feeding on the worms in next door's lawn. So as soon as you start to think of your garden as a part of that wider mosaic, not only have you got all the other gardens that will contrast with it, but you've got places like overgrown cemeteries and the local park. And I live in Wolverhampton. The canal system in Wolverhampton is a fantastic network that, mm. that delivers me dragonflies and damselflies. Uh, so it's it's much more about thinking how you can garden your little patch to fit into that wider picture. Yeah, I see. Um, you, you mentioned ponds there and you mentioned otters. My brother indeed has had otters in his little ponds. Oh, well. Then. <laughs> yeah. he, he's probably about ooh, a third of a mile from the nearest river, but they seem at night time, they seem to have learnt to uh, travel around the gardens and help themselves to koi carp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a, a lot of people, I think I've over the years, of course, I've had lots of correspondence from people and lots of people have this moral dilemma when a kingfisher or a heron turns up. Do they keep going to the pet shop and buying more goldfish to feed the kingfisher? Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you can have spectacular experiences. I, 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 uh, I think one of the another of the dilemmas is that because I live in Wolverhampton's urban forest. Uh, it's it's really good for tawny owls here oh, uh, because right. of the park, but it's also pretty good for sparrowhawks. Now, sparrowhawks, when I was making children's television programs 40 years ago, one of the programs we made was about the almost complete extinction of sparrowhawks because of the pesticides that were affecting the eggshells. The eggshells were getting thinner and thinner and the, the, the sparrowhawks were not succeeding. Those chemicals were banned eventually. Sparrowhawks bounced back and are now thriving in urban Britain. And one of the great moments for people with a wildlife garden is when the sparrowhawk comes whizzing over the fence and wipes out, you know, your favourite blue tit um, <laughs> that you've carefully positioned on the bird feeder just for convenience of the of the sparrowhawk. So, I mean, what matters to me is that people get that first-hand experience right outside their their door. And and it's another of the things that's happened with all of that is that it's spread into schools, for instance. So one of the great effects of the book was that it began to be a kind of Bible for those teachers who wanted to teach their kids outside, to change their school grounds, to create the kind of butterfly gardens and the and the ponds and the, the meadow gardens in their school grounds. And that, there's now a whole generation of probably almost grandparents <laughs> who went to schools that had that kind of influence because partly of this book and that whole different way of thinking. Yes. Now, Planting within these garden, gardens, I know it's a little bit of a hot topic, and I'd be interested to see what you say about it. Um, it's the natives <laughs> and the exotics mm -hmm. arguments. Um, what what, what uh, approach do you take to that? Well, it's interesting that the Royal Horticultural Society has done lots of work in the last 10 or 15 years on the, the role of, of uh, let's call them exotics, but garden cultivars and garden, garden plants uh, in supporting wildlife. I, I go back to something I said earlier. My view is that this is all about gardening in a different kind of way. It's not about nature reserves. There's a big difference between 
creating or managing uh, an ancient woodland and not wanting to go in there and plant exotics and, and a lot of conservation time is spent getting rid of rhododendrons for instance from china that have occupied and are swamping other wildlife but in the context of gardens i think the brilliant thing is that in horticulture we can do rather better than nature in the sense that we can extend the nectar and pollen season longer than you would get out in the wild so in my garden by probably in about a month's time there will be carpets of of primroses nice beautiful native wildflower more than worth its place in any garden but before the primroses flower there will almost certainly be grape hyacinths flowering they come from the eastern mediterranean they're exotic but they flower very very early and as far as the butterflies that are hibernating through the winter the the peacock butterflies for instance and the small tortoiseshells they will overwinter as adults they'll emerge on the first warm sunny day of january or february and they're looking for nectar and so my garden and other gardens begin to be a place where the very earliest of the nectar can be found probably amongst exotics and the very latest of the nectar can be found at the end of the season from things like north american columbus daisies um so i think it's it's important to understand the role of native plants certainly you can attract the butterflies to nectar and pollen on lots of different plants but they lay their eggs very specifically on native plants and so you need a mixture but you don't need all of those things in your garden if you go back to the idea that yours is a service station in the wider landscape so for instance i don't have any stinging nettles so i don't intend to have any stinging nettles in my garden but the lane at the back of the house is full of stinging nettles mm -hmm. What I want is for those stinging nettles to still be there, for the council to not come down and spray them or chop them down, and for the caterpillars that feed on the nettle leaves to then turn into butterflies that come and feed in my garden. Yes, yeah. So we've created this. We've got your book, and we've created this wonderful garden. Um, what can we expect to see? Let, let me just mention a few things I've seen that you might be quite interested in, actually, and then we'll see uh, what other things have uh, 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 caught your attention. I, I mean, for instance, I look after three gardens in the Cotswolds um, near Sirencester in Gloucestershire. Um, I came across a couple of snails once, which were um, Helix leucorum which is mm -hmm. the Turkish snail. Looks just like a Roman snail. You know, it's a big ping pong ball sized snail. Um, it was the first time it had been recorded in Gloucestershire, and it had only been recorded in Gloucestershire and Cardiff and London once before. So that was an amazing sight. Um, the other thing that caught my eye once was a necklace ground beetle, um, Carabus manilis, I think. It's one of these predatory ground beetles. Beautiful, sort of like a petrol on a puddle, it, the colours. Um, really outstanding. And in a classic situation, sort of on the edge of a meadow, actually. Um, and then the other thing I saw, which is probably quite common, but most people probably overlook, but being gardeners, we're always down on our hands and knees, scratching about. And I came across this hoverfly, um, Volucella pelicans or pelicans, I think. And it's the one that creeps into a wasp's nest and lays its eggs in there. Um, what was it? And I actually managed to film it on my camera. And what was interesting was, and I'm told this by some experts, it was, it was rubbing itself all over. And they said, what it's doing, it's covering itself in these, um, 
cuticular hydrocarbons, they called it, but I think that's basically a, a, a chemical camouflage so that it just, you know, had odor wasp, if you like, all over yeah, it. And it smells it could, like a wasp. Yeah, and it could just wander on in and, and, and lay its eggs in, in the nest. And what the other interesting thing was the wasps coming out were picking up what to them must have been huge boulders, probably three times their own weight, to clear the nest and flying off with them. Um, so that, that's just three things that I've spotted that have really amazed me. Have, have, has your garden lured anything in that's that's caught your eye? Well, I think I think the point you're making is a really important one. That actually, it's it's in the detail and having the time to observe and to observe constantly that is where gardens really score. You know, if you're lucky and you go to a, a nature reserve somewhere, you might see something spectacular. But it's it's in the detail and just looking at the flower border and beginning to realise how many different kinds of bees there are, mm. even in my inner city garden, is a revelation to most people because most people say, well, it's a bumblebee or it's a wasp. And then you have, you know, I'm lucky enough to get uh, strange people visiting my garden who know about this stuff quite often. So you have a bee person in the garden for an afternoon and suddenly you're discovering that there's 13 or 14 different kinds of bumblebees on your flower border. Um, and one of the things that I, I used to do a long time ago when I worked with kids a lot was we used to do um, a, a length of string safari where we just drop a, a yard of string down into the grass and then follow it on hands and knees and suddenly you reveal this extraordinary world Brilliant. of creatures that you would normally just you know, tread on or trip over. Yes. So that at the detail level, I think there is always more to discover. And particularly if you have a pond, then the creatures that live down in the pond are spectacular and mm -hmm. extraordinary. But I think, I think uh, it's the observation and the, having the patience to watch that is important. I remember... Uh, very early on when I, I, I made a, a television program called uh, Blue Tits and Bumblebees, which was about the same time the book came out. And that was me converting an entire my garden. The BBC were very brave and they said, OK, we believe you. You'll start with this bland lawn and in a year's time it will be full of wildlife. And they filmed for a year and Fortunately, it was full of wildlife. But one of the things that I remember was that there were two kinds of dragonfly that came to the pond. There was a darter and there was a hawker. Mm. And the, the, they look quite different. Uh, but what nobody seemed to have observed before was that whilst the, the hawkers climb up vegetation on the edge of the pond and they hang there and then they burst out of their, their chrysalis and fly away, the darters don't do that. The darters crawl as a chrysalis, if you like, as a, as a nymph, crawl out of the pond crawl across the lawn to the nearest long vegetation, 10, 15 feet away, which is where they turn into dragonflies. Well, because I was seeing the garden every day, I suddenly started to see these empty cases on the edge of the meadow <laughs> rather than on the edge of the pond. And I talked to dragonfly people who said, well, we, yeah, we, I don't think anybody's noticed that before. So even at that kind of, of level, even in a relatively small garden, there are still discoveries to be made, you know, and that's mm. really exciting, I think. Now what we have, of course, 40 years on, we have these great citizen science programmes. So whilst I might have been doing that as an individual 40 years ago, now you've got 
the the classic is the big garden bird watch um which has half a million families now recording the birds they got on their bird feeders every year and that's really adding to the the, the knowledge base for the rspb and the British Trust for Ornithology, but you've got Bee Watch, you've got Butterfly Watch, you've got Frog Watch, you've got all these things where gardeners are suddenly this huge resource, just observing their own patch and then feeding the data in so that we're beginning to get really clear pictures, partly of how things are changing, partly of the invasion of species like your snail and, and um, oh, you know, uh, invading species of, of ladybirds and new moths and, and so on. These are being observed by gardeners. And you can see these invasions moving north with climate change just year on year, thanks to the, the citizen scientists, if you like, the gardeners who are doing more than just hoeing and digging. They're actually observing and enjoying and recording. Uh, you mentioned hawker... Um... Dragonflies just now, and another observation I spotted was that the hawkers around the pond in a garden I look after, they lay their eggs in the moss around the outside of the pond rather than in the water. And I, I assume what happens is on a perhaps a wet day, late summer, these the, the nymphs make their way into the pond. Um, but yes, it was fascinating filming this dragonfly laying its eggs within the, the moss on the edge of the pond. Yeah, well, yeah. and, and, it, and it's a good it's a good uh, kind of indication of how important the detail in habitats is. You know, you look at um, lots of ponds in people's gardens and they have this kind of sheer edge of either yeah. concrete or butyl rubber. And it's there are two things that really make a difference with the, with the pond for wildlife. One is the margin, the mosses, the plants growing in the shallow water. And the other is having mud in the bottom of the pond. And and when I when I made um, blue tits and bumblebees, one of the things that people remember from the film most is me tipping subsoil into the pond before I filled it up. Um, and that was so counterintuitive, really. But actually, mm. if you take those same dragonflies, they'll spend two years or even three years as a nymph in the pond, and they're down in that mud for a lot of the time. So the, the fine tuning of habitats, I think, is something which we've kind of lost from the wider landscape but that we can rediscover in, in gardens. Moving on a little bit, there's a, something that to some people would be a little bit of an oxymoron, um, the wild kitchen garden. You know, how can we have a kitchen garden but allow these uh, hungry insects into it? Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about that. There's been a quite an interesting parallel journey, I think, between wildlife gardening and organic gardening. Um, same kind of 40-year period of, of changing attitudes and uh, keen vegetable gardeners many of them will be familiar with the idea of companion planting and, and the way in which growing different plants together they help and support one another um, and there's no question that uh, obviously quite a lot of the, the the crops that you want to grow need pollinators whether it's your raspberries or your your peas or your broad beans so Gardening in a way which encourages the pollinators will obviously support um, the vegetable growing, the food growing. But also um, quite a lot of the hoverflies, for instance, are predatory. And so they will lay their eggs in the caterpillars of some of the pest species that would otherwise be eating your cabbages and lettuces. And, and although it's a, it's a kind of an emerging art form, if you like, that relationship between working with nature 
relying more heavily on natural predators to deal with the pests um, goes hand in hand with reducing your commitment to pesticides and and uh, and to pest killers, basically. And I think the feedback that I always get from people is that you have to, it's an act of faith when you shift, when you start to think in a different kind of way. And if you can just hold your breath for a season or two, then you find that the garden settles into a different kind of rhythm. And you're still up against extreme weathers. So, you know, in a spring where it's warm and wet, the slugs and snails will be way beyond the appetite of the local song thrush. And, uh, but, but the ground, the ground beetles, for instance, are a kind of a silent pesticide squad out there at ground level, tackling not necessarily the slugs, but the slugs eggs, for instance. So you get the balance and the richness right, then it's a different way of just thinking about that balance. And and I think you also learn, any gardener learns, that there are certain things that are beyond the scope of any kind of uh, intelligent thinking gardener. You know, I, I long gave up trying to grow uh, courgettes in my garden because the slugs just get them every time. But I've also talked to gardeners who have put a, a pond in their garden and grown hostas around them. Hostas are absolute magnet to slugs. <laughs> and under the hosta leaves, they will find toad after toad after toad and no slug damage to their hostas. So, you know, if you're an optimist like I am, then I think you can you can work with that process. And you also have to be a realist and say, well, OK, no to courgettes, but maybe yes to some other things which which will find a way of living with the balance. And the pollinator thing is so clearly obvious. You know, uh, if you don't have lots of bees on your raspberry flowers, you don't get raspberries. It's <laughs> as simple as that. Uh, and, and if I have to sacrifice a few of the raspberries to the blackbirds at the end of the summer, well, you know, that's uh, that's all part of life's rich tapestry. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Now, Chris, you've been involved in a number of schemes. Um, and actually, the one I'm going to mention is quite timely. We're recording this in January 2023. Um, but I think you were involved in the National Nest Box Week, weren't you? Have I got that right? Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, this is something which has, has grown and grown in significance. And it's um, rather charmingly, it's, it's launched on Valentine's Day each year. So it's very easy to remember. Um, and it's it's one of the ways in which you can enrich your garden the one thing i can't fit into my small garden is a big tree with hollow branches and actually increasingly neither can parks departments or anybody else because of the health and safety risk but many of the woodland birds that we get on our bird feeders nest in holes and if they're deprived holes they don't nest so nest boxes are a really good substitute for that um, and nest box week is just a way of kind of kickstarting people to either clean out the existing ones they've got or put up some new ones. But the, the other thing that I'm I think more proud of really is that I I launched something called Dawn Chorus Day uh, on my 40th birthday. I, I at the time I had a garden that had been on TV quite a bit, and I knew that I wasn't going to see lots of my friends, and it was an important day. So I contacted them and said I'm going to get up at four in the morning and go into my garden and listen to the dawn chorus, it would be great to think that you might do the same. And lots of, well, they said they did anyway. I mean, I'm assuming that lots of my friends did get up at four in the morning. But since then, dawn chorus day has really become 
an extraordinary phenomenon. Um, within a couple of years, uh, there were dawn chorus days taking place in North America and elsewhere. And more recently, I've been working with um, the Irish radio station, RTE, and they, for several years, have had a, an eight-hour program on International Dawn Chorus Day, which is the, the first Sunday in May, um, starting in India and travelling right the way across the Northern Hemisphere. Following the following, following the, dawn. the sun and following yes. the bird song, and with, with different voices, different ornithologists and wildlife people chiming in as the sun hits Turkey or hits Israel or hits Italy to talk about the bird song there. And it was really striking in the depths of lockdown and, and COVID, the number of reports there were of people noticing for the first time how much bird song there was in their neighborhood. And everybody was saying the dawn chorus is louder than it's ever been. Actually, it was the traffic that was quieter than it's ever been, probably. Uh, because actually, probably the dawn chorus was rather quieter than normal because dawn choruses are about competing for volume. And if you aren't competing with all the traffic noise, you probably don't need to sing quite so loud. But International Dawn Chorus Day, for me, absolutely encapsulates everything I'm about, really. It's free. You don't have to go anywhere to enjoy it. I've listened to the Dawn Chorus on International Dawn Chorus Day in all kinds of strange places in Vancouver and on the Golan Heights in Israel and all over the world. But the best dawn chorus still is the one here in the middle of Wolverhampton. Um, and all I have to do is open the bedroom window. You know, I don't even need to get out of bed. And that, for, for millions of people now, has been one of those magical connections with nature that you can achieve anywhere. And that's really special. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm a member of the uh, Wildlife Sound Recording Society. And of course, you know, we're very interested in that. And uh, many a time I've been up uh, quite early, especially on Dawn Chorus Day, um, and been out in the woodland. And as I'm heading back in, um, everybody else is coming out to have a listen. So I've caught it nice and early. But also where I live, we're very lucky. We've got um, nightingales down the road. Um, so I've been able to record Actually, on one occasion, I had nightingales and a cuckoo within 20 yards of each other duetting. Fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely amazing and able to record it as well. So it it is a lovely thing to do. And I don't think I think you're right. Um, I've spoken to um, sound recorders from all over the world. And and a lot of them say there's nothing like a, a British dawn chorus. Well, the interesting thing is that the best singers are woodland birds by and large, which which brings you right back to this idea of the urban forest, that the birds that you have in your garden are essentially woodland birds, and they have to be able to sing because they can't see one another in the woodland. Um, and so we do have a very special range of songbirds here. And, uh, you know, if the weather's good, there's nothing quite like that magical moment before dawn, as you know as well as I do, when you hear the first robin and then you hear a distant blackbird and then a closer blackbird and then within about 10 minutes, you can't distinguish one from the other because it's just a cacophony of wonderful orchestral sound. That's magic. That's absolute magic. Yeah. Um, So, Chris, back to your book, um, fully revised and updated. So has there been an additional chapter or have you gone through it and, and, and altered and edited every chapter? There's lots of of kind of um, of changes, uh, certainly from the original, because it's been an opportunity to talk about how things have changed. And some 
very positive changes. So lots of people get goldfinches in their gardens and their bird feeders now. 40 years ago, they were an, a real rarity, and it's bird feeding in gardens that's brought about that revolution. Other species like spotted flycatchers that were in every garden 40 years ago almost disappeared yeah. because the insect population has crashed everywhere. Uh, but the main reason I really wanted to bring out this new edition was to talk about the work that I've moved into really which is now absolutely central to so much of what's going on and that is to take the idea of of bringing back nature and apply it to the much wider landscape and particularly in the context of climate change so for instance uh, i've been able to write about the coastal landscapes where taking down the sea defences is allowing the sea back in as a way of dealing with rising sea levels but it's restoring the salt marsh and that's bringing back wading birds and fish fry. Um, in the uplands, re-wetting the peat bogs as a way of countering the problems of flooding and drought is actually bringing back the curlews and the golden plovers to the uplands. So the idea that you can intervene and manage and bring back nature is something which I'm very involved with professionally, and I'm working with people like the water companies and the National Grid and others, um, but it's something which I think has grown out of this idea that the shift from precious nature reserves in isolated places to joining the landscape back together is now really beginning to take root. And uh, even to the extent that I'm, I'm working on the idea that the offshore wind farms, of which there are going to be more and more, are our best opportunity in generations to restore the seabed, to bring back the seaweeds, mm -hmm and to really revive the coastal waters. And one of the wonderful things is that not only are the wind farms are uh, producing renewable energy, but we're now beginning to realise that the kelp forests and the, the, the sea lawns, if you like, are more effective at capturing carbon than ancient woodlands are. So there's a really interesting development here in bringing together restorative nature conservation with political drive and with these big players to restore nature to the wider landscape. And the end of the book is very much about that kind of shift in the scale of thinking. Yeah, Chris, that's a, a beautiful and very positive way to finish. I'm sure you're happy to see the changes that you've noticed since you first wrote the book. Um, when, when's it out? Right, when can people see this new, new version? Publication date is uh, is in Nestbox Week. Uh, it's ah. the, the official date is the sixteenth, but you can advance order on Amazon or you know other book suppliers are available. Um, hopefully, I'll see piles of it in the shop windows of all the independent bookshops. Um, but the brilliant thing is now we have podcasts, so we can talk about it, and people can within two minutes have ordered the book. Yes, and hopefully that's one of the things that will happen. Wow, what an amazing insight into ways of encouraging wildlife into our gardens and what a privilege to be able to talk to someone so knowledgeable and who has so much experience in the world of horticulture. Thank you, Chris. We recorded this in January 2023 and our gardens are slowly showing signs of life. One plant that's already braved the cold and poked its nose through the wet soil is the little snowdrop. There's a large amount of interest in snowdrops. Passionate enthusiasts are known as galanthophiles. And for any of you suffering from that affliction, you may like to know that on my website, I've published my up-to-date snowdrop price index. 
That's over 70 different snowdrop varieties that have sold in excess of £100. And the highest price, £1,850 for a single little bulb. Go to joffelfit.co.uk to see all the other prices achieved for this diminutive bulb. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. And I hope you'll click follow on your podcast app and keep up to date with every episode as they're released. In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your garden a safe haven for wildlife, and your wallet safe from any galanthus-induced urges. I'll see you next time.